We continue on in our John series, and um, this is the last in the section of John that we're going to do for the moment, but we'll keep coming back to John going through slowly. Um, and um, we begin today uh, by looking at um, a really famous story. This morning, most of you would have come to church, I'm guessing, because you want to I guess you, you come in because you think it's a good thing to do and it's important as a Christian, but also because you're wanting to improve your relationship with Jesus. Most Christian, most people, most Christians are always trying a bit harder each year to grow their relationship with Jesus. You want to be able to have a sense that he knows you, that he looks out for you, that he has his hand in your life, that he cares who you are, and that, that is perfectly Good. Like that's what, what you want to be longing for as a Christian. My relationship with Jesus is something that I constantly work at, and I'm, I'm sure you're, you're glad to hear that as your minister. <laughs> um, right now, I, I think the thing that I think about the most in terms of my what I'm sort of talking to Jesus about is about how to disciple my two boys. I think, um, you know, Leo and Ezra... They're going to school in North Victorian kinder, and I think how is, as ministers' kids, but also kids growing up in this area, am I going to do what I can, the best that I can as a dad, to help them stay Christians through their whole lives? And I have to be honest, I'm a little bit um, scared about it. Like I don't totally... There's no guarantees with anybody of what's going to happen to them. And it feels a little bit like um, the tide in this area, maybe it's just the whole of Australia, but especially in, in, in this area, is really going against kids sort of embracing Christianity. So that's why I talk a lot to Jesus about at the moment, and that's what my relationship is focused on at the moment. And I know many people will say, because when I talk to you one-on-one, um, -on -one, that you find the relationship part of your faith difficult, like with Jesus, like you, you want to have a relationship, but you just, you know the words of Jesus because you read the Bible, but, but relationship, you're not so sure about. And um, I can sort of understand that, like, how do you have a relationship with a person that's invisible? You know, it, it is, it's a reasonable thing to wonder about. Well, you'll be pleased to know that actually it's not as much of a mystery as you will think. The Bible actually has a lot to say about it, but how you can have a relationship with Jesus. And there's one kind of main idea I want to focus on for today, and that is that Jesus is the initiator. He's the initiator. In friendships, there's often the person who takes the lead, who actually um, really drives the, the friendship. You'll know what it's like. I, I, I can remember... You know, standing in the playground at school and maybe it's the first week of school and you're just sort of looking around with your lunchbox, you know, you're holding your Vegemite sandwich and you just don't know who to play with and you're looking around and then you, you feel on your shoulder someone's tapping you on the shoulder and, and they say to you, do you want to come and play down ball with me? And then suddenly your heart puffs up and you feel really pleased that someone's noticed you and this is what you've been longing for all lunchtime and you feel special because somebody else has taken the initiative with you. Well, Jesus is like that, only times infinity with us. 
He's the one who taps us on the shoulder and takes the initiative. So let's look at this story and see how that works out because there's a bit for us to think about. The setting of the passage from John, John 5 is um, on the kind of um, on the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus has gone down to this, this pool um, uh, near the sheep gate and there's a festival going on and there's often a festival going on in the Gospel of John but this time we don't know which, which is the festival. And um, this is a pool that you can actually, if you look on your front cover of the booklet, you can see that's where, where it was. Archaeologists know where it was. And I always like to kind of point that out because I think it's good for us to remember. I'm just going to move a bit closer to you all. It's good for us to remember that we um, have an, a historical faith. There you go. We, we have a historical faith. So it's actually happened in real space and time. And um, uh, there were two pools there um, lying north and south, um, surrounded by um, four covered colonnades in a trapezoid shape, if you want to know. And there's a fifth colonnade separating the two pools. And um, in our passage um, from the Bible, you'll see that there's a bit in brackets and in italicized around um, just before verse 4. And it says this, and they waited for the moving of the waters. This is what people do. We were doing at the pool. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each distur- such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, most, most of the manuscripts of the Gospel of John don't have that, but some of them do. And so the idea is people think that as the, because um, they didn't have photocopies in those days, so people used to have to write it out by hand and copy and copy and copy, that so, somewhere along the line people wrote that in brackets or on the, on the side or to try and explain what the traditional belief was um, about this pool. And so sometimes the, the publishers of the Bible make a decision whether to include these extra bits or not, and so some Bibles it's not included in other Bibles it is. Um, so that's, so that's kind of what people believed when they went there, that they'd get healing if, when they saw the waters disturbed. Um, it was a popular superstitious belief, let's just put it this way. It, was, it's not a, it wasn't seen as like, uh, you know, a thing that God placed there, but the Bible is not suggesting that. It's a superstitious idea. Uh, different springs would lead, lead into this water, and um, it was kind of a ready-coloured mineral water. So um, you can see why people... Um, had these beliefs. And it's a good reminder that the people that we read about in the New Testament, the Jews, they, they weren't necessarily clean-cut Jews. Like they, had these, they had all kinds of funny mixed ideas in their beliefs. Um, when I interviewed Jeffrey last week, you'll be, you might, if you were there, you'll remember he talked about how in West Papua, in the, in the villages, which were predominantly Christian, there were also these lurking pagan beliefs, um, traditional West Papuan religion that would lurk below the surface that people wouldn't talk about that would be kind of not not officially tolerated by the the church but um, that many Christians would actually also follow on the side a bit on the side and that's what's going on here um, there's also a, a pattern forming in in the gospel of John we want to just notice as we sort of look at this story and it's around the image of water um, so at the wedding of Cana, the large purification um, uh, uh, jars, uh, which was used for ritual cleansing, uh, where, which Jesus put the water in, then, and then they turned, turned the water into wine. Jesus didn't put the water in, but the servant did, and then they turned it into wine. This kind of 
wine for drinking at the wedding reception was also a, a powerful image of the new wine of the kingdom of God, the, the, the wine uh, of, of life, the richness of life, um, that really could bring life in a way that the ritual water could not bring life. When Jesus met um, the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, the water from this well couldn't actually um, quench the thirst of religious people. Um, who may have looked for genuine revelation, only Jesus could do that. And here at the pool of Bethesda, um, the promises of superstitious religion will be shown to not have the true power. Um, Jesus will be shown to have the true power. So at this pool, you see from verse 5, um, we were told that there's this um, invalid, or like a, a, sometimes he's called a paralytic man, um, who'd been this way for 38 years. It's a, it's a long time to be an invalid. Um, and Jesus literally picks him out of the crowd. You know, we've got to imagine there's a pool and there's, there's going to be lots of people there going for healing, but Jesus chooses this man. Um, we don't know why specifically he chose this man, but Jesus has his reasons. It seems this man was minding his own business, waiting for the waters to stir so that he could get in there, um, which he'd been unsuccessful at previous times. Um, Jesus chooses him um, to engage with him, to single him out. And we, we can think about this for ourselves too, that Jesus, in the same way, takes the initiative with us. What we have to understand is this, is that um, God is watching us through our whole lives. Even before we're born, he knows who we are. Even when we don't have the ability to even think about him, he's thinking about us. Listen to these famous words from Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So it makes sense that Jesus can have a supernatural knowledge about this person sitting at the pool because of the mind of God that he has. We see, see a similar thing with the Samaritan woman in the previous chapter of John. So when he picks you out for a relationship, this is not a random occurrence. He's been working up to this moment for your whole life. And he's made this, chosen this time in his perfect timing. And Jesus understands the man's pain. And he says this question, do you want to get well? And it sort of sounds like a strange thing to say. It's like, would you say that to a person sitting in the waiting room in a doctor's surgery? No, you wouldn't say that. But I think we're supposed to um, read it as more like, What's stopping you from getting well? Why haven't you got well so far? You've been coming down to this pool. And the man actually has the popular belief, the religious superstitious belief, that this pool will heal him. And Jesus is trying to get the man to explain why it hasn't happened so far. He's trying to get him to be eager to be healed. And this man is really eager. He's desperate. And there is something in that for every new person that begins a relationship with Jesus that I, I've seen it over and over again, most of the time the person will need to come to a place of desperation before their faith begins. Not always, but most of the time. Um, 
Perhaps the weight of the guilt of sin drives you to need Jesus and you desperately cry out and say, please, the only thing I can do now is have your forgiveness. Perhaps it's your loneliness and you feel isolated but you're drawn and comforted by your relationship, a relationship with God on offer. Perhaps it's your sickness and it weighs you down and you're wanting comfort. Perhaps it's your fear of death and what's going to happen to you after you die. It drives you to be desperate and say, I need help. And sometimes critics of religion, you will have heard them say that religious people are just people who are desperate and who need something to give them hope. And I'm like, yes, that is totally true. What's wrong with that? This man is desperate. I am desperate. You're desperate. But he hasn't actually yet started looking to Jesus for the help. He says, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I try to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So right from the start, we can see that this man is a bit narky. You know, he's a bit irritated. And he's not that appreciative of Jesus. He, he never comes to the point in all that we find out about this man. He never comes to the point of appreciating Jesus. He doesn't say, oh, thanks for asking me about my dilemma. Are you offering to help? That would be amazing. He doesn't say that. But that's okay because Jesus got the answer he wanted, that no one ever helps this man. No one ever helps me. See, Jesus Jesus actually doesn't need us to be appreciative. If he chooses to enter into that man's life, he's going to enter into that man's life. It's going to happen. And he's going to turn it upside down whether he wants it to happen or not. So Jesus speaks these very direct words to him. Get up. Get up. Immediately the man is cured. And this is a bit of a taste for us about what it's going to be like on the last day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. He will speak, get up, and the living and the dead will raise. He actually, Jesus actually makes this point later on in chapter 5, if you read on in verse 28. He says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus' words are God's words. They come with the same creative force that brings the world into existence. They come with the same uh, resurrecting power that raises Lazarus from the dead. They come with the same power that can calm the sea. He can heal the sick. And he adds words words to these words of healing. Pick up your mat and walk, he says. So it's not like um, the the paralyzed man's going to stand up and be like, he's just come out of a general anesthetic and he'll kind of stagger away. You know, it's like, you know, it'll be like that. It'll be energy, you know. And so this is a dramatic flourish to the whole whole thing. He's going to rise in full strength and that is exactly what he does. He rises in full strength. So, see, when Jesus taps us on the shoulder, it's not just to play down ball. He's inviting us to have our lives permanently transformed. Well, we then learn that this healing took place on the Sabbath. Uh, 
and this is going to prove to be a bit of a problem for the Jewish authorities. Laws have been broken. Look at verse 10. The Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, Oh, it was the man who made me well said to me, He said to pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. In four other times in Jesus' life, uh, in the recording the Gospels, he heals on the Sabbath. And the big focus is on, you're not supposed to be healing on the Sabbath. Um, and this is what largely uh, led to Jesus being you know, arrested and killed on the cross. You know, so for Donald Trump, it's collusion with the Russians. For Jesus, it's healing on the Sabbath. It's a bad comparison, I know. Um, but he's going to get in trouble for this eventually, and it's going to catch up to him. But actually, in this case, it's... It sort of is a bit about that, but it's more about the fact that the man's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath laws get, get interpreted by the rabbis, and there's, all the, there's, there's about 30-odd different um, kind of examples given of what work means, and one of them is carrying things from one vicinity to another vicinity. So you can pick up your iPad, but you can't pick up your iPad and walk to Collingwood, you know. Um, and so... The, the authorities are saying to this man, um, that's what you're doing, you're breaking the Sabbath law, and he's palming the blame off to this mysterious healer who can't remember his name because he didn't bother to ask. Um, eventually, when the Jewish authorities found out who healed the man, they're going to see Jesus as the accomplice. Now, Jesus, of course, does have the right to heal on the Sabbath. He's not breaking any law at all. He, he comes to fulfill the law. Uh, not to throw it away. Um, and I'm not going to go into all the details of why that's the case. And Jesus does go on past our passage to explain a bit of, a bit of the reason why. But trust me, um, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He can do what he likes on the Sabbath, um, especially bringing in the kingdom of God. But let's keep our focus on the healed man and his response to the authorities who are making inquiries. When the man gets caught carrying his mat... He's taken by surprise. He deflects the accusation back to Jesus or back to this mysterious man. He doesn't actually say his name is Jesus. And because this man was irritated and self-absorbed, even after he was healed, he still he doesn't know his name. He had experienced the transforming power of Jesus, the Christ, the Lord of the earth, the Son of Man, the Word made flesh, the Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, and he completely took it for granted. And we can roll our eyes and say, can you imagine if it was me, I would have totally asked his name and talked to him. It's easy for us to say that, but maybe you're like this man. Maybe Jesus has tapped you on the shoulder and has entered your life and you are totally taking him for granted. Perhaps you just haven't even noticed him there. Well, there's another important point to make about what is, goes on in this passage, and this is what Jesus says in verse 14. I'll read it to you. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. 
the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, so later, sometime later, we don't know how long, presumably not that far later, the man is at the temple praising God because he's healed. Um, that's probably why it was there. And, and Jesus sees him and says, you know, to, to consider his moral life as well as his physical life. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, in the Bible, we learn that um, it's actually not the case necessarily that um, you, a person's suffering or sickness is as a result of the sin that they commit. Um, if you read the Proverbs, um, it says that this way, it says, act wisely and you will, ex- you will receive blessings, act foolishly, I'm summarizing, act foolishly and you will be cursed. But then the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament actually goes, adds a layer of complexity to it and says, well, actually, realistically, sometimes good people have bad stuff happen to them, don't they? And sometimes bad people have good stuff, don't they? And actually, the world is quite random. Um, life can be random like that. So Jesus actually affirms this view of the world um, from Ecclesiastes in Luke chapter 13, he says that um, to, the, to the crowd that the 18 people apparently died um, recently in the story when this tower of Siloam fell on them. Jesus says, well, don't think that they were particular sinners. I mean, they were just the same as everyone else, you know, um, in Jerusalem. They, they just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, the 2,000 or so 3,000 people who died in September 11 all those years ago, when we saw it on TV, if you're old enough, and the, and the towers came down and people, I mean, whether you're Christian or Jewish or atheist or Buddhist or old or young or mean or kind, I mean, the disaster happens the same, doesn't it? Personal suffering is not necessarily a result of your sin. But sometimes it is, actually. Sometimes our suffering is as a result of our sin. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30, for example, Paul says that some people in that church actually had died because they'd been mucking around in worship. Um, they'd actually been sinful in worship and so they died. Uh, and we read in Acts 5 the very scary story of Ananias and Sapphira who'd um, been deceptive in their church and then dropped down dead in, on the spot. So this does happen, and you might have known people, I mean, a kind of an obvious example of this is, say, if you're married and you have an affair, then um, your spouse finds out and is really angry and your marriage is, is damaged or even ends, and then you um, kind of cause pain and heartache for your family or children and other people around you, then your suffering is as a result of your sin. I mean, it's easy to see in that example, isn't it? You have no one else to blame but yourself. And it seems that this man who was healed by Jesus falls into that category. That he'd done something, we don't know what, that for 38 years caused him to, cause, to experience suffering. And Jesus is saying to him, I've healed you physically. I've given you a new lease on life. You can now start again, but I want you to cooperate with me I want you to stop sinning or else something worse might happen. Perhaps there's something worse that Jesus is talking about is the final judgment. Perhaps there's something worse is that he might have received a physical healing but stayed spiritually sick and far from God and be judged and condemned on the last day. Jesus has made his mind up to pursue this man and transform his life and now he's just asking for cooperation. 
And so this is my point for this morning. If Jesus makes his mind up to pursue a relationship with you, he will. But it's much better that you cooperate. If Jesus makes his mind up to pursue a relationship with you, whether you like it or not, whether you notice or not, whether you care or not, he will. And so now it's much better for you to cooperate. He takes the lead in our relationship with him. But we also need to be active participants in the relationship. And Jesus' recommendation to the man to stop sinning is being made to you too this morning. Stop sinning is really also, I think, we can safely say it's a kind of a summary for take your faith seriously. Take your relationship with Jesus seriously. Um, read your Bible, learn about me, apply it to your life, live out your faith, love God, love your neighbour as you love yourself, embrace your new identity as a child of God, just as I brought healing and transformation to you, why don't you bring healing and transformation to others? Unfortunately, to bring it to an end, unfortunately this man, he didn't get it. Look at verse 15. Once he did find out Jesus' name, he goes and tells the authorities, he stubs on Jesus. But how amazing is Jesus? Jesus' love is so mature and selfless that even with this man who does not care, he pursues him, he changes his life. And even if you are now a bit self-absorbed and a bit discouraged and distracted and suffering from something else and it's causing you to just not even be able to think about Jesus, he has got his hand on you and he's got his eyes on you and that is amazing. And so just start cooperating. Let's pray. Lord God, we lift up anyone here right now who... um, you've been tapping on their shoulder for their whole life or even just started to and who hasn't yet sort of started cooperating and taking notice and stopped sinning and, and, you know, and started actually taking a relationship with you seriously. We pray that that will start this morning. Um, and we thank you that you don't need um, us to be amazing friends for you to start a relationship with us. We thank you that it, you are the strong friend, the strongest friend who, who chases us down. Amen.